those come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Good morning and welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Can we start every show off with Beyonce, please? I, please. If it was up to me. It's, well, it is up to you today, right? <laughs> Stanley is not here. So. Right. Boo. <laughs> yeah, we're right. really sad. Pretty much. I, I mean, I am. Sarcasm aside. So um, <laughs> welcome to the show, everyone. My name is Selena Hill. Um, I'm one of the hosts here and Let Your Voice Be Heard. I'm actually engineering today. That's why you see me in the seat. If you're watching via Ustream, Stanley Fritz is not here. But as we know, the show goes on with the women of the team holding it down. Um, you guys can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Miss Selena Hill. Hey, hey! I, I, I thought you were going to say hello to me. <laughs> well, good morning to you, Selena. Good morning, um, and good morning to you. Good morning. And I am Alyssa Fuchs, and I am your legal correspondent, and you know sometimes your political correspondent, and all things correspondent. Yeah, <laughs> just gender cor- issues correspondent, yeah, right. LGBT issues correspondent. Yes. Um, but Jackie is, uh, you know. Jackie's got to hold me down today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So anyways, uh, welcome to Let Your Voice Paired Radio. And you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs. And that's Alyssa with an I. I'm going to try and live stream from there as well. Uh, we're also live streaming on WHCR's webpage. So you can live check us out there. Um, or you can check us out on Politically Preposterous and leave us a comment there. So uh, plenty of ways to get in touch with us. And I am Jackie Cohen. Um, I'm like the political slash everything else correspondent. You're our feminism correspondent. Yeah, with my sweatshirt on yeah, today. Tell them what your sweatshirt my says. My sweatshirt says, angry liberal feminist killjoy. Love it. makes me very happy to wear. I love this sweatshirt. Um, the best. And I am the president of the Stanley Fritz <laughs> Hater Club. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at Jackie Cohen. That's J-A-Q-I. C-O-H-E-N. I'm Definitely. Happy to be here today. Well, I'm happy to be here, too. We weren't here last week, but we are back in full effect, and we have a great show lined up today. We're starting off the conversation speaking about anti-Semitism in Trump's America. We've been seeing a host of attacks across the nation against Jewish Americans at synagogues, at Jewish community centers, at schools, and it took the president a really long time to actually address it and condemn it. And then when he first addressed it, he like rudely dismissed an orthodox Jewish uh, reporter. Yeah, has he even fully addressed it at this point? I guess he has. Yeah, but like, like last week he did. It shouldn't take that long. It, it should not take more than one second. To Especially when your administration is talking about fake terrorist attacks exactly. that didn't actually exist and condemning things that are totally made up um yeah and right. yet you are not condemning things that are actually going on right yeah so we'll talk about that obviously jackie and Alyssa are proud jewish americans so <laughs> right proud jews in the house yeah yes. no yeah yeah and i mean we'll we'll get more into it but it's definitely been something i've seen a, a huge culture change and sort of more incidents even very close to home and i'll talk more about it um you know it, it, since trump's america has uh 
taken place. Right. So uh, speaking of Trump's America, later on in the show, we'll be speaking about immigrant fear, fear, immigration and the latest ICE raids. We'll also be talking about solutions as sanctuary cities and freedom cities. And we'll define these terms and figure out how we can protect these marginalized groups of people, which we call immigrants, that uh, contribute so much to our society and our communities, but they are also being persecuted as everyone is pretty much in Trump's America. And then last but not least, we're going to stay on the theme of persecution because apparently the Trump administration wants to roll back protections of trans students, something that the Obama administration did, you know, a good job at trying to put into place. um, And now the Trump administration is probably going to roll that back. No, they did. And we're going to talk about what that means. And um, going forward, I'll give you a, a breakdown of that. But the gist of it is, in short, that the Obama administration, as Selena said, had put in some protections to protect trans students specifically in public schools. Um, the Trump administration is, you know, has rolled those protections back. And there's also a Supreme Court case uh, that is going to be heard next month about these issues, which may have the potential to either nullify the actions of the Trump administration or to, uh, I would say, confirm the actions of the Trump administration. Definitely. So we'll get into that. And of course, guys, you should let your voice be heard. You can tweet us at beheard underscore radio. You can also call us up at 212-650-6903. We'll be back. We're sorry, but we ain't really sorry. We are back, and if you are wondering why the depressing, somber music, well, we're going to be talking about something that's completely depressing, and if you were thinking Donald Trump, you were right. So, we're back. (laughs) This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs and Jackie Cohen, our... Regular big mouth engineer, the ones you guys love or love to hate. He's actually not here today. Love he to has hate. a day off. Oh, well, loser. <laughs> He's not here. He's probably listening to this show right now. He's probably like hungover. I guess we can wish him a happy birthday. I guess that's belated, like, belated birthday, whatever. Right. You're old, Stanley. Basically, that's how we wish you a happy <laughs> yeah. birthday. We just basically ridicule you for being old. Yep. All right, so um, Donald Trump, right. So Donald Trump's presidential campaign and the subsequent election win that still surprises me to this day, it pretty much ushered in this new emboldened wave of white nationalism. Now, many Trump supporters who identify themselves as the alt-right, they've been spreading messages of hate that target immigrants, Latinos, and Muslims. But another group on the receiving end of these attacks 
is Jewish Americans. They are a, a group of people that have been marginalized and persecuted since biblical times. And in January alone, 48 bomb threats were called in to Jewish community, community centers across the country. Meanwhile, a neo-Nazi threatened to hold a march in Whitefish, Montana, to intimidate the Jewish population in the town. Now, on top of that, the neo-Nazi symbol, Pepe the Frog, has also been spread Mm -hmm. on synagogues. Um, Synagogues have been defiled with anti-Semitism. And just last week, a Jewish cemetery was desecrated. So in response, President Trump, he pretty much remained silent on these anti-Semitic attacks and instead was condemning Hamilton, Meryl Streep, Arnold Schwarzenegger, (laughs) the media, the Jewish media, the press, (laughs) like all of these things that are not even worth a tweet. Um, So that's what he has been focusing on. Right. And then there was a Orthodox Jewish reporter who questioned Trump about the rise of anti-Semitism. And he like rudely dismissed him and refused to take the question seriously. So and to make matters worse, the Trump administration released a statement to acknowledge Holocaust Day remembrance. But it failed to mention the six million Jews who were who perished now. In response, obviously, a lot of Jewish groups and Jewish Americans were extremely upset. And then the White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, he responds by saying, you know what? You guys are nitpicking and nitpicking is in quotation marks. So I wanted to start this conversation off by just asking Jackie and Alyssa, who, again, are Jewish, um, you know, from a historical standpoint, why is it important for us to take these anti-Semitic attacks in our country seriously? Well, I think for a number of reasons. I mean, I want to say that as a Jew, as a Jewish American, I've never experienced anti-Semitism in the way that my grandparents and certainly my great-grandparents have um, I've experienced active acts of anti-Semitism um, in my hometown. I have experienced anti-Semitic sentiment in college, um, but it hasn't affected my life in the way that um, you know. Perhaps my my gr- grandparents or great grandparents have been affected by it. There has been no. I've never had to fear not receiving a job because my last name was Jewish sounding, right? Whereas my great grandparents and my grandmother changed her last name to be able to advance in society because her last name sounded too Jewish. Um, But we've seen time and time again persecution against Jews. My family personally is in this country not because they fled the Holocaust, but but prior to the Holocaust, they fled pogroms in Eastern Europe, acts of violence against them. And I think that there's two reasons that folks should be paying attention to these threats of violence and in some cases acts of violence. Number one is that there's a history of this that's longer than the history of the United States of um, harmful acts towards Jews. And number two is that a lot of the things that we've seen our administration do, a lot of the acts that they or actions that they've taken against other marginalized groups in this country, not just Jews, mirror things that have happened to Jews time and time again. Um, I think that there have been a lot of parallels drawn between Nazi Germany and this new administration in the way that they're looking to out and um, expose different groups of people. And we'll talk more about um, Trump's ICE raids and immigration raids. And to me, it rings so familiar um, the way that Trump is acting towards undocumented immigrants versus how Nazi Germany treated um, Jews in the 30s. But so I think that there's some clear parallels between what we're seeing our administration doing to other marginalized groups, not Jews specifically. Um, But, you know, we should learn from history and not and uh, strive to not um, 
have history repeat itself. Agreed. Guys, if you are just tuning in, we are starting Let Your Voice Be Heard with a conversation about anti-Semitic attacks across our nation and the president's response. If you want to chime in, feel free to call in at 212-650-6903. And I just want to repeat the question to Alyssa for guys just tuning in. Um, You know, we've seen all of these attacks why should we be taking them seriously, more seriously than the Trump administration is taking them from a historical perspective? Well, I mean, I think we should always take attacks on any minority group seriously, whether it's Jewish people or immigrants or people of color or Latinos or LGBT people that, you know, and any other minority group that I left out of that. Um, that said, I think this is so important for many of the reasons Jackie mentioned, but um, there's two that really come to mind, at least for me. Number one being um, the even further historical underpinnings. And by that, I mean the biblical underpinnings of some of the things that Jewish people have gone through. Um, So if you look all the way back to biblical times, Jews were enslaved in Egypt for a long period of time, eventually leading to the story of Passover, um, which I... Not going to go into the details of, but suffice to say, it's in the Bible. So if you are interested, um, you can go check that out. That's not the only time throughout uh, biblical history that Jews were enslaved. You also had Jews enslaved by a king, Haman. Uh, That's the story of Purim. And you had persecution of Jewish people. um, And that come in many different areas. One of those that we can just put out there is the story of Hanukkah, when the Jewish temple gets destroyed and they are looking for oil. And the oil is only supposed to last one day and it ends up lasting eight days. So, I mean, going all the way back to biblical times, Jews have been historically discriminated against. Then fast forward to the um, 19th, 20th century and start talking about uh, what happened back in the 1950s, which seems like a long time, sorry, 1930s, but seems like a long time ago, but really is not actually a long time ago. Um, and that is the Holocaust. And, and that is part of World War II. I mean, Hitler basically spread this propaganda claiming that Jews were the problem, that Jews were the enemy, um, that Jews were no good. In fact, they used to publish newspaper articles um, with supposedly crimes that Jews had committed in another way to demean them and disenfranchise them. And eventually what we see is six million Jewish people being killed in gas chambers, in death camps, in Germany, um, and largely, for the most part, the world ignoring it, even when World War II is being fought. I mean, in fact, if you talk to some of the Americans and British soldiers that liberated those death camps, um, they said that there was, you know, it was almost as if they had no idea that was even going on, even in the context of the war. So this notion of anti-Semitism isn't really a new notion. Um, but we, as we have pointed out, we have seen this coming into fruition even more and more today with the election of Donald Trump. And that is a very scary scenario, given that there are lots of other parallel that we are seeing to what happened in 1930s Germany. Definitely. So, you know, you guys take this. This is a personal issue for you guys, obviously. And I wanted to just ask, what did Donald Trump's silence on these attacks, uh, what did that say to you? I mean, I think for me, it y- you can't not condemn this, right? Like I said at the beginning of the show, it's not that hard to say this is wrong. Right. Most politicians would say that. Right. But Donald Trump is very aware of who voted him into office. Many of the people that voted him into office are white supremacists that agree with these kind of attacks. So he, the fact that he even 
hesitated on answering um, this question says to me that he's thinking about, well, what can I get away with saying that's going to not offend my base? And my base is people who are in large part anti-Semitic. So that's deeply troubling to me. And, you know, he can deny that he is... um, you know, he could say, well, I'm the least anti-Semitic person in the world, which I think he literally said those words, oh, yes. right? Which That's is a quote. like insane to me. At the, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I was mentioning um, at the beginning of the show, this is a personal issue for me as a Jew, but also as somebody who recently experienced somebody um, desecrated a playground shortly after Donald Trump was elected with swastikas. They graffitied swastikas all over this playground and graffiti go Trump. Next to these swastikas, R- which playground in, um, in in Brooklyn, the Adam Yock playground in in um, Brooklyn, and named after someone who was born Jewish, who I think was a practicing Buddhist, who was a member of the Beastie Boys. Um, so, you know, you can argue, well, this person doesn't, you know, Trump didn't tell this person to go do this thing. You know, these people believe this before Trump was elected, and I think that that's true. I think that anti-Semitism certainly has been a sentiment that many people have felt. Trump didn't just like awaken this necessarily in people's hearts and minds, but he enabled people to feel comfortable to then go out and act on this feeling. Right. And that I think is really important to remember. And by by being silent and remaining silent and not admonishing these acts immediately, he continues to be complicit in these actions. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I just wanted to add on because you said one of his quotes and he said, and I quote, I'm the least anti-Semitic <laughs> person you've ever seen in your life. Alyssa, is that a <laughs> Is, is that offensive? I mean, it, it sort of is. Yes. It, it, I was just saying, yeah, it is. Because it doesn't address the issue to, in the first part. I mean, nobody's asking whether he's personally anti-Semitic or right. not. Right. In fact, his daughter is married to Jared Kushner, who's an Orthodox Jew, and I believe her herself converted. So clearly, he doesn't, he personally, uh, I don't think in person, I, I honestly, and I'm not defending him, but I don't think personally in his heart that he is anti-Semitic sure. or that he does not like Jewish people. That said, um, you know, he also has brought these people out of the woodwork and made it. I mean, like, I agree with Jackie. These people have always existed. The, the thing is, he's brought them out of the woodwork and made it such that it's almost like they think it's OK now to be overtly right. racist and anti-Semitic because nobody's going to condemn it because Trump is the president. I, so, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's really where it is. In addition, I just want to add, he hired Steve Bannon yes. as his yes. next of next in line, basically. I realize Mike Pence is the vice president, but for all intents and purposes. As his right hand man, essentially. Yeah, Steve Bannon is his right hand man. Steve Bannon is on record as saying he would not send his children to school with Jews and has made sort of subtle anti-Semitic comments. Um, or headlines on Breitbart that have said, like, you know, like, renegade Jew does that. Like, he has certainly used every platform of his to disparage Jews. Um, and, you know, his ex-wife was under oath speaking to his um, fervor for anti-Semitism. So, and this is who has our president's ear day in and day out. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter that Trump has a Jewish daughter or Jewish son-in-law. It's like saying, you know, I am the least racist person on on the face of the earth. I'm the least racist person you've ever met. I have a black friend. So (laughs) because I have a black friend, that makes me the least racist person. Like, no, that's a flawed argument, right? We're talking about, like, systemic issues, not your personal relationships. Well, can we and should we even expect more from Donald Trump? Let's not forget, he's the per- he's also the person who casually dismissed an endorsement from former KKK Grand Wizard David Duke. So, I mean, 
And this is the part. He showed us who he was. America elected this man. He's not a skilled speaker. He says things that don't make sense and are offensive. It feels like every single day. So, I mean, are we being too hard on someone? No, I don't think we're being too hard on him. I mean, he's the leader of this country. He has to be held to a high standard. You know, every day he's complaining about the media is mean to me and these people are mean to me. And this is that. Did did you ever hear Obama once complain throughout eight years of his presidency? And if you don't think people were mean to him, you're crazy because people were so mean to Obama. (laughs) Like every day, people were out and out calling him the n-word so like and and he there was no reaction and he did not complain so trump is a fragile little snowflake and that's what he tries to say about anybody else anyways i want to get back onto this topic and just sort of go back to the steve bannon thing and the trump thing just for a second um which is you know this is these are people that are clearly playing to a certain group, to yeah. the people that they believe got them elected. But it's not just that they're playing to a certain group, at least with respect to Steve Bannon. I think he actually believes it. Yeah. He at CPAC this weekend was talking about what he calls, quote unquote, economic nationalism. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> there are so many <laughs> problems like underpinning that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that sometimes a little bit of, you know, national... Uh, I don't want to say nationalism is good, right? But I, I think sometimes there is sort of something good about saying, you know, we want to make sure we protect Americans and that we make sure that Americans aren't in poverty and that we do, you know, before we worry about people from outside of the country or from the rest of the world. Um, but I th- don't think that's the same thing as what we see going on today with all these hate groups popping up. I mean, just to give you some numbers, um, the Southern Poverty Law Center does a great job about tracking hate groups, and they have been tracking hate groups since 1999 through 2000. Um, In 2014, there was sort of a dip, um, but uh, in 2011, hate groups reached their highest, which was 1,018 um, that they were tracking. And then they went down to 784. And now uh, in 2016, we're back up to 917 hate groups. Um, The majority of these hate groups are white nationalist groups, although not all of them. Uh, There has been a 197% increase in the total number of anti-Muslim hate groups, um, because, of course, Jews are not the only religion that these people don't like. There are 130 total number of Ku Klux Klan groups that are active in the United States right now. There are 663 total anti-government quote-unquote patriot groups. Um, and, you know, there obviously there's a lot more numbers I won't go into. If you're interested in them, I would say that you should check over out the Southern Poverty Law Definitely. Center. So, I mean, we have data to back this up. Right. We're not just sitting here saying, oh, you know, these groups are coming up and the Trump administration has emboldened um, more hate. I mean, we actually have data no. that, that proves that this is the case. It's definitely happening. And I just want to add that Trump's silence says that American Jews are not worthy or deserving of reassurance. Like, all we <laughs> needed was a simple like denouncing like all you had to do was condemn the attacks and i think people on the left and the right would agree to that but somehow donald trump is in his own world and own category of disgusting but on that note we have to take a quick break when we come back i'll be asking the question can you be anti-semitic and still pro-israel it seems that that's what the trump administration is doing we'll be back after this break I just, I took before I saw you, 
So if you're a regular listener to the show, this is the part where Stanley would be singing and like making up words about Hennessy and Trump. Like, no, we're not doing right. that today. <laughs> no, yeah, we're, we're not doing it. We're playing it. very good, empowering feminism music today. That's what we are doing no, here. No, I agree. I agree. It's the all girls, women's show here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. We're back. This is WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, I'm Selena Hill. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs, our resident legal scholar, and Jackie Cohen. In our feminist extraordinaire. Oh, I like that title. I like that title. I want to put that on my business cards. <laughs> you should, that should definitely be on your resume. Yeah. Um, so we've been having a conversation about anti-Semitic attacks in our country, the Trump administration's response to it, and and basically, you know, what this means for Jewish Americans, a, a marginalized group in our society. So I think it was just yesterday, our vice president, Mike Pence. At CPAC, he reassured America that the Trump administration is a strong and proud ally of Israel. So I, the question that I posed right before we went on break was, is it possible to be anti-Semitic and pro-Israel at the same time? Yes. And if you guys want to call in, if you guys want to call in and answer that question, you can call us up at 212 650 Six nine zero three. Jack, you say yes. Yes, and to be clear, it's it's possible. I think to to not be anti-Semitic and be pro-Israel. It's possible to be anti-Semitic and anti-Israel, and it's possible to be anti-Semitic. There's a lot of combinations. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of combinations, but. Um, but yes, and we're seeing it with this administration, and I think um, you know the the yes, our our administration is certainly pro-Israel. Um. And pro, not just pro-Israel, pro-settlement, pro-Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. Steve Bannon, who, as we established earlier, is a known anti-Semite, was is very vocally pro-Israel. And, you know, conservatives on the Jewish right have accepted this. And, And it's really, as a Jew on the left, it's extremely troubling to me. And Steve Bannon, not only is he pro-Israel, pro-settlement, he was invited to speak at the Zionist Organization of America Jewish Institutions event. Um, as a speaker, you know, like, I don't understand why, or I do understand, I guess, that there there are Jews and non-Jews who support Israel who are willing to put aside any sort of anti-Semitic sentiment in that quest to preserve what they're looking for in Israel. Um, but it's to me as a Jew, it's so deeply unsettling that there are Jewish institutions on the right, right-wing Jewish institutions, who are accepting Steve Bannon despite his known anti-Semitic comments and ideals because he is pro-Israel. Right. I mean, I think here's the most important thing to know about this is there's a difference between being anti-Semitic and being anti-Israel, and there's a difference between being pro-Zionist and um, being pro-Jew, right? So these are these are different things, and we have to remember that. I mean, yes, Israel is, for all intents and purposes, the Jewish state in the Middle East. Um, and yes, the majority of people that live there are Jewish, although that is really changing, um, which is a different Mm -hmm. conversation for a different day. Um, But, you know, you also so so that's the first thing. There are many people, as Jackie pointed out, that are pro-Israel, but that don't like Jews. And there are also people that um, are Jews and that who like Jews who are not anti-Semitic at all and who are very, very frustrated with with what's going on in Israel right now and what's going on with the settlements and and the way the Palestinians are being treated. In fact, Jackie and I are two very vocal people on this issue as American Jews to say, you know, 
I mean, I can say personally, I've been to Israel. I think it's a wonderful country. I have good friends that live there. That doesn't mean I agree with what Bibi Netanyahu is, is doing. Um, I also recognize that the issues between the Israelis and the Palestinians are complex. Um, I really don't want to get into a long conversation about that now. Uh, if that's something that you are interested in hearing us talk about, tweet at us. Let us know. And it's something we'll definitely consider to do in a future show. Um, but... To, to keep it on this topic, which is you have to question the reasons why people like Steve Bannon are pro-Israel. Exactly. And it's not because they are pro-Jew and it is not because they are not anti-Semitic, which is essentially a double negative because... I think Steve Bannon is anti-Semitic. It's because of the fact that they believe that when the apocalypse, as Christians, they believe, or at least, I'm not not saying all Christians either, um, but at least his version of Christianity is that there's going to be some kind of apocalypse or doomsday scenario. And when this happens, um, God is going to come back uh, in some form and he or she is going to come to the Holy Land, the, the chosen place. You have to remember, both Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all start really in Jerusalem, in that area that they used to call Judea. And so the reason why they are so pro, or somebody like Steve Bannon is pro-Israel, is because if he believes that if Muslims, if Arabs um, have that land, then when the doomsday thing comes and happens, that God's not going to know where to go (coughs) or something like that because of the fact that there's no Judeo-Christian religion in that area of Jerusalem. And so his motives have absolutely nothing to do, as far as I can tell, with actually respecting the Jewish people or respecting uh, or not being anti-Semitic. It all has to do with his own crazy notions about what's going to happen in this doomsday scenario and whether or not God or Jesus is going to come back and he is going to be able to be saved. I don't even (laughs) think it's, I don't, I, you're, I feel like giving him too much credit. I think for Steve Bannon specifically, he just wants all the Jews to go, to go there and get out of here and, you know, and not even, he's not even thinking that sort of spiritually, he's just like, get the Jews out of this country, go to Israel. Right. Well, something I actually wanted to address something I think Alyssa mentioned a few uh, minutes ago, and those were the attacks that were the anti-Semitic attacks that were happening uh, in 2011, 2015 and 2016, because as bad as it's been in 2017, neither 2016 nor 2015 have been great either. In fact, the Anti-Defamation League reported that in 2015, there were 90 anti-Semitic incidences on school campuses, twice as many as before. And statistics show that there's no real evidence that anti-Semitism has been rising under the Trump administration. So my question is, you know, I read these were posted in the uh, Washington Post and they were thoroughly researched and uh, uh, referenced. So my question is, um, are do you guys feel like it's more anti-Semitism or are we just now paying attention? I Like I said at the beginning of the segment, this has always existed. This isn't like Trump became president and now all these people were like, oh, wait, we don't like Jews, right? Like this has been in existence in this country for years and years and years. Um, and But but as a Jew, I have to say, like I, I feel its presence much more. And I felt pre- the presence of anti-Semitism in my life for, you know, as long as I've been aware that I'm Jewish, right? Like, I, I've experienced active anti-Semitism, but it's different when it's coming from the leadership of this country, right? It's different when it's being, when when you're seeing acts of anti-Semitism occur, and then the president refuses to speak to it. The president who, on the the day of remembrance for the Holocaust, puts out a statement to the public that doesn't even acknowledge the fact that Jews died in the Holocaust, right? Who 
takes a step back and cautiously, you know, sort of handles this with kid gloves because he doesn't want to upset his political base. I mean, it's these these feelings have always existed in this country, but now our president is complicit in these sentiments. And so that is why this is, you know, feeling much greater than maybe it has in years past. I mean, I think that's fair. I, it, he basically didn't want to upset anybody, so he put out an all lives matter statement. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, and we talk about that all the time when we talk about Black Lives Matter, that when we say Black Lives Matter, we don't mean that we're excluding other groups. We mean that black people have been historically disenfranchised, and therefore we need to make it very, very clear that Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's the same thing that happened. He could about, He basically could have put out a statement acknowledging all the Jews, six million Jews that were killed in the Holocaust, mm-hmm. Um, and instead, they went, all lives matter. Other people died in the Holocaust, too. I mean, and that which really is true, but which is true, but it undermines the entire argument. The, the other thing that I wanted to say about this is that, you know, I although maybe, like you said, there's some evidence to show that there's it's not anti-Semitism is not on the rise as much as I think maybe we're perceiving it. Nonetheless, I will say, you know, after Donald Trump was elected. I I really it's something in me that was very scary Um, because I just you know and I don't want to be alarmist but there are a lot of parallels between 1930s Germany and between what's going on and as a Jew one of the things we are taught is never forget never again you know that we have to make sure that something like the Holocaust never ever ever happens again and so when you start to see inklings of some of the things that were going on in the 1930s starting to happen again that is very scary and that's when you need to start speaking out and you need to start saying like this is unacceptable you know you know without being alarmist and without saying oh my god Trump is Hitler although there's definitely some leanings of that um, you know we need to be able to recognize the signs when they arise so that we know how to deal with them and just to um, push back a little bit against the Washington Post numbers and I realize this um, covers North America which includes Canada and Mexico and not just the United States um, but this is an article that was literally published yesterday in a Canadian magazine, uh, Canadian newspaper, the Toronto Sun, which says that anti-Semitism in North America has reached unprecedented levels, accounting for almost 60 percent of the religiously motivated hate crimes that occur in Canada. So this is not just something that we are seeing going on in the United States. Canada is also having this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially Canada is considered to be a very, very progressive country, in some cases even more progressive um, than the United States. And yet they are seeing lots and lots of rising anti-Semitism in Canada as well. And the other thing about this is anti-Semitism doesn't always come in the form of overt anti-Semitism, like the painting of swastikas on a park uh, that Jackie pointed out, or the desecration of Jewish tombstones um, that you mentioned, which was another thing that happened this week that was in the news. Anti-Semitism also can be very subtle. When people say things, um, you know, like we've had conversations around stereotypes and about how, you know, in some stereotypes are true, right? But sometimes other stereotypes are things that have been created over time about groups of people in order to make them seem bad when they're not actually true. And so when we see anti-Semitism, sometimes we don't necessarily see it in the overt form. We see it in a covert form almost. When you hear things, say people say things lo- about 
Jews and money or about <laughs> Jews controlling the media or when people yep. talk about a new world order or the Bilderberg group or all these conspiracy theories about how, um, you know, people, the, the rich and the powerful and the Rothschilds are taking over the media in order to control the universe. Um, those things may not be overt anti-Semitism, but they are attacks on Jews um, in at their core. And so people sort of skirt under the radar by making these types of comments about Jews and about Jews controlling the media and about Jews being good with money and, and this, that, and the third. And they may not seem anti-Semitic, but they are. And we have yeah. to be, um, and it's important to call those comments out as well and not just right. be calling out the overt anti-Semitism. So, you know, besides just calling it out, what else can and should be done to protect Jewish Americans and other marginalized groups under the Trump administration? I mean, I think what we need to do is stand up for one another. This is how we, we resist this, right, is that we stand in solidarity with all marginalized communities as one. And Alyssa mentioned before, you know, Jews talk a lot in reference to the Holocaust about never again, never forget. And that doesn't just mean for Jews, right? It doesn't mean that we have to make sure this never happens again to Jews. This means for anybody. And something that, um, you know, Selena, you mentioned before, the, the cemetery that was desecrated in St. Louis this week, Linda Sarsour, who is... Um, a Muslim-American woman who's an activist who's currently, you know, who was involved with the lawsuit against our president, against the um, illegal Muslim ban, um, raised $20,000 to um, to rebuild the cemetery, I think, in four hours. $20,000. She put out a call to her own community, and we saw money flooding in. And I know a lot of Jews, including myself, I was like, I was cavelling to use the Yiddish word, right? I was very emotional <laughs> over it because this is what we need to be doing. And I think that despite the bad that this administration is putting out there, there's so much good that we can use to support one another. And so when we look at acts of anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or xenophobia or racism in this country, it's more important than ever. It doesn't matter if you're angry or if you want to post a Facebook status about how unjust um, a political action is. At the end of the day, you need to show up for these other marginalized communities because this is how we will succeed together. No, I, I totally agree with that. I think that the in the, in the face of this kind of animosity, anti-Semitism, rising nationalism, um, you know, one, it's important that we call people out for what it is, right? People are constantly calling people the alt-right. And some people really are just the alt-right. But when somebody's anti-Semitic or somebody's acting like a Nazi, call them a Nazi. Like, don't be afraid to, to just get in somebody's face and say, no, that's anti-Semitic, that's racist, that's nationalist, you're acting like a Nazi. Like, we need to call these people out. Number two, as Jackie pointed out, we need to stand together. Jews, Muslims, Christians, anybody who believes in a better society where we have f religious freedom, that we respect people from all religions, needs to band together and condemn acts of hate and stand together um, as one and say, we do not agree with these things. We are not going to live in a society where these things are okay or acceptable or where we are not going to condemn them. Number three, of course, now I'm forgetting what number three is. Number three, we need an administration. <laughs> Rick Perry. <laughs> no, I, no, I remember. Number three is we need an administration that's going to stand up and call these things out as well. And we need to put pressure on Donald Trump to say, you know, it's not okay for you to just say, well, I'm not anti-Semitic. You need to stand up and say, these things aren't okay. Anti-Semitism is okay. Anti-Xenophobia isn't okay. Remember, Donald Trump, you represent all Americans. You do not just represent the people that elected you. And this is from me to you, Donald. You need to stand up for marginalized communities. And lastly, um, we need to remember that 
we need to stop pretending that certain things are persecution when they are not. When Starbucks decides that they're going to use red cups and they're not going to oh put Christmas God, trees on them, that is not persecution. I... When somebody decides that we're going to put up a menorah and a Christmas tree at the mall, that is not persecution. So we need to stop playing the boy who cried wolf about every little thing that is not persecution. And we need to focus on those things that actually are. Well, I agree 100%, guys. And I mean, just to add on, I wanted to just mention that the Anti-Defamation League, they actually define anti-Semitism as a form of prejudice, hatred, and exclusion that intersects with other kinds of racism and bigotry. And this is something that's all too common to people here in the U.S. and to the, the, just basically the fabric of our country itself. And I think that whether, we're, you know, we're persecuting Jewish people, Muslims, um, people who are in LGBT, the LGBT community, or black people, I think that the underlying theme here and solution is just education and love. Because when we understand that we're more united than we are separated. And I think what Donald Trump is doing may backfire because it's pushing us all together where you have leaders like um, um, Linda Sarsar, Sarsar um, and other people coming out and saying that, you know, this is wrong. You know, I don't wait. I don't need to wait for Donald Trump to directly use the N word or say something against, you know, black Americans. I mean, which he has done. I can call out what's wrong against, you know, my Jewish friends or my Muslim friends or it doesn't matter because persecution and hatred doesn't really have like, you know, a specific target. It targets everyone. Mm. And I think that when we look at it from this way in a very inclusive manner, we can all stand together to stop it. Now, with that said we do have to go on a quick break but don't go anywhere when we come back we're jumping straight into the news roundup talking about really juicy interesting stories right here on let your voice be heard and we are Stanley back. would be really I know. <laughs> he would be impressed. This is Stanley's playlist. Yeah, okay, I gotta course. tell you, I really like Bad and Bougie. Oh, I didn't know you guys wanted to hear that song. I really like it. Well, I I think everybody really likes it. Can I just say, it's too bad nothing happened in the news this week. (laughs) We got nothing to talk about right now, unfortunately. Is is, is that the case? That's actually not the case. (laughs) Um, So we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. The voice of Harlem. We just wrapped up a great conversation about anti-Semitism in America. And the great part was the solutions that we came (laughs) up um, because everything else about it is not so great. And, you know, speaking of things that may or may not be great, I wanted to start the news roundup by saying that Donald Trump has actually decided to not participate in the White House Correspondents Dinner. Now, the last president who decided not to was President Nixon, also someone who had he has I think Reagan. parallels. What else is new? I thought it was Reagan because he was in the hospital recovering <laughs> from getting shot. I don't I think that doesn't count. But they said he's the first Trump's the first person not to go in 36 years. It's an it's option out to opt out. I think out. that's very interesting that the only other president was Nixon. Right. And but I think that's and very what's, telling. What's Nixon's famous line? I am not, not a crook. A crook. Yeah. 
Which is followed immediately thereafter with him giving a peace sign and getting on a plane. Right. In a helicopter and flying away. But, like, honestly, I'd much rather Alex Baldwin to um, come as into the, to do the White House Correspondents' Dinner rather than Donald Trump anyway. I is think, that happening now? Well, that's what social media is calling oh, for. Oh, I love it. They've yeah, been I that. love it. I don't think that's actually going to happen. I will say, if you watch Donald Trump's performance at another comedy event which was the catholic charities event where him and hillary went to go speak i think that was like a day or two before the election and he started out and he was actually funny and i'm sure he didn't actually write those jokes himself um and i'm sure hillary didn't either although barack obama was known to write a lot of his own jokes or to at least edit a lot of the jokes that people wrote for him um and he totally bombed like at this catholic charities dinner i think at one point he just started like going into his stump speech Yes. And saying like lock yes. her up um, <laughs> like it was like awful um, so if that's any indication of how he would have been at the White House Correspondents Dinner maybe it's sort of a good thing that he's not <sighs> going and the other thing is I was thinking about the White House Correspondents Dinner after he got elected and I was like you know Obama was just so funny yeah. for eight years I don't even know if I want to watch it now because I just feel like nobody's going to no, be as Obama funny as Obama was is. great at those. But, I mean, it's not surprising. I mean, Trump this week banned the New York Times, Politico, and CNN from a White House press briefing. That's a big deal. That's right? a big That's deal. That's unprecedented. I got a New York Times alert <laughs> about it. I mean, obviously, they were the ones banned. Um, How can he do that? Because he has control over who enters those meetings and I mean arguably like you know when you think about it as an isolated incident and not like the broader implications of what this means it's not the biggest deal I mean the White House press briefings there's not like a revelatory you know amount of knowledge that comes out of these things it's pretty much like Sean Spicer you know running his mouth saying lies yes (laughs) saying saying lies not alternate facts but lies um so there it's not like there's so much information that's that's pressing and you know we're being denied all this information because these three sources weren't given access but this i think rings it's very scary for a broader sense when you think about what what this means you know he's starting to take action not just condemning the media and press conferences but actually barring them from access to him and that's really really dangerous really reminiscent of early 1930s germany if i have to say so which i do um and i mean this is something that we should be it, fearful of it also reminds me of vladimir putin's style yeah. of dealing with the press where the only outlets he really regularly allows um to like access and, and to cover him are the ones that support him and i feel right. like trump is doing the same thing and it's like if you aren't awake to what's going on now is definitely the time to wake up because it's scary and it's dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. The, one of the fundamental freedoms of the United States is the freedom of the press. It's written right into our Constitution and the First Amendment. And if you remember, I mean, the uh, having a free press that is not state-run, um, because, by the way, if you want state-run media, you can look at North Korea, where all the information comes through a filter, and the people there will believe whatever the government tells them, because the only news that they really have access to is the government propaganda news that plays on every station. So the benefit to having a free press is obviously that the press investigates the government and calls the government out when the government is doing things that we should know about. Yeah. I mean, the, the the Watergate story, you're just talking about Nixon, the Watergate story is broken because of investigative journalists going out there and digging and digging and digging and talking to people and eventually coming to the bottom of this and breaking this huge story, which was that the, the, the president had directed his honchos to break into the 
Democratic National Committee and to steal their research. And, and, and not only that, that the president had actually recorded tapes of himself directing these kinds of actions. Um, so th- the free press is, you know, so, super important. In fact, you know, we, we keep bringing up 1930s Germany. I think that's like the theme today a little <laughs> bit. Um, but there's a list of things to, to that notice around you when things are changing to become more fascist. And one of them is the tamping back on the free press. Yeah. Um, and so this is why, as Jackie points out, it's a real concern. But just from a legal perspective, because I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, um, while you're right, the, uh, you know, these press briefings a lot of times are just Sean Spicer perpetuating fake news lies. And, and lies, because I refuse to use the term alternate facts. They are lies. Um, nonetheless, this is going to create a big issue just because at some point, if not already, these organizations, if he keeps keeping them out, they're going to bring a lawsuit against him. Um, and they are going to uh, they're going to sue and they're going to say that he's violating the First Amendment rights to freedom of the press. And eventually there may end up being a ruling on that yeah, right. um, that essentially says they're going to seek injunctive relief. They're not going to seek damages. They're going to seek the, the courts to say that the president cannot block them. It is absolutely terrifying. And, you know, before we dig into something else that's completely terrifying, which happens to be the Russian scandal, that's been, the scandals that have been going on. I wanted to mention this is also the fifth year anniversary of the that death the murder the killing of Trayvon Martin R.I.P. Trayvon we have not uh, forgotten and we all know that Trayvon Martin it was the, the, the that his death was what initially launched the Black Lives Matter movement yeah. which has been ongoing and basically holding police brutality and and, and officers uh, accountable you know, and but, vigi- uh, white vigilantes as well. I know we're going to get into talking about Russia, which sort of ties into our conversation on the free press. But before we do, I just wanted to real quickly mention yesterday the Democratic National Committee. Oh, yes. In Atlanta, they held their election for their chair. Um, it was basically a race between Tom Perez, who was sort of the establishment type candidate, and Keith Ellison, who was the more progressive Bernie Sanders liberal wing um, candidate. Uh, in the first round of balloting, there was no clear winner in the second round of balloting tom perez did win however in order to bridge the gap between the uh we'll call it more mainstream establishment uh, part of the democratic party and the more uh left bernie sanders elizabeth warren wing of the party uh tom perez immediately after being elected asked the committee to suspend the normal rules and appointed keith ellison to be the deputy chair of the dnc so it looks like the more establishment wing of the party is going to be coming together with the more liberal wing of the party to figure out how they can work together to move things forward i think that's a good thing although there's been a lot of negative feedback on social media about the election of of Tom Perez, especially from the left. And there's been a number of people on the left that have said they still feel that they're going to leave the Democratic Party. And then, of course, you have that huckster, Jill Stein, who had to go on and tweet yesterday that if you didn't like the outcome, you could always join the green irrelevant, (laughs) sorry, irrelevant Green Party. Oh, wow. But yeah, so I mean, honestly, I really thought Keith was going to be elected, but I feel like a lot, like you said, people on the left are thinking like this is just establishment politics as usual. I do want to mention Tom Perez when he was labor secretary under the Obama administration. He was extremely progressive, um, almost mo- the most progressive person in the cabinet. But still, like Keith Ellison represented that new voice. He was endorsed by Bernie Sanders way early mm-hmm. into the race. And, you know, I was definitely 
cheering for him. So we'll see how the DNC um, leaders can revamp the Democratic Party. We know that Democrats um, do not control any branch of our federal government. And there has been a downward spiral across the country when it comes to Democratic elections uh, on the local levels. So we, we definitely need to um, do something to revitalize. Right. Do we think that this is going to be good or bad? I mean, do like, do we think that the party is too far gone and is too fractured for their for any result to be good like i mean i mean i i don't know right i'm not going to say like if keith ellison won like things would be better or worse i think it's too early to know but i do think that there's like a the democratic party is in crisis i mean i think it's a little bit of an overreaction on the part and i consider myself sort of in the keith ellison bernie sanders wing of the party me too but i think to say that you're gonna leave the party over this is a little bit of an overreaction when nothing has actually happened happened yet and like you should give it a chance as you pointed out Selena Tom Perez is actually very progressive and was very progressive when he was the labor secretary number two obviously in a show of good faith as I already pointed out he made they he had them suspend the rules so that Keith Ellison could become the deputy chair and I think it's a situation where yeah people are frustrated the election was you know Hillary Clinton lost the election a lot of the left blames the fact that you know what happened with the DNC and Bernie Sanders and and I know there's a lot of discontent about what went on in the primary. That said, you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to win more elections if we continue to be divided. And, you know, while I don't want people to just cave to the establishment portion of the Democratic National Committee, nor do I think they should, I also think we need to figure out a way how we're going to work together to move forward. Because if not, we're just going to end up with four more years of Trump after <laughs> this. No. And that, that's the or truth. Pence. And so, you know, like, it, there there has to be this place where people, I get, people want to be ideal ideologically pure and I can respect that but life isn't about purity or ideological pure pureness it's about compromise and in order for it us is to about purity if you're on the alt-right yeah you know <laughs> and, and in order for purity. us to mm-hmm. move, move forward we need to figure out how the uh, you know the left Bernie Sanders wing of the party can come to certain compromises with the more establishment wing of the party and so that we can win elections because that's what matters right now I don't know, Alyssa, you sound really pragmatic right now. I don't know if the, the people on the left are, are you know, the gene, the, the people following uh, the Green Party and people who are leaving Democrats to go independent would like that, but... I mean, I listen, mean, they might not like that, but I think this is part of it. You know, people like to say the millennials are sort of like entitled, and I don't believe <laughs> that. I think that's a, a common misunderstanding. But I do think that at least with my, and, I'll, and I speak as a millennial, like in my generation, I think we've reached a point in time, at least when I was studying politics growing up, that I was really taught that a lot of politics is compromise and figuring out how we can work together and bipartisanship. And that's how our system really worked for a long time. And I think now there's a lot of millennials that like they want what they want and if they don't get it they want to walk and you know like that's just not always how it works so well people are tired of how it's been working but on that note we do have miss deborah on the line who would like to let her voice be heard about trayvon martin which we mentioned a few minutes ago uh miss uh good afternoon miss deborah hi how are you everybody good 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 morning um i'm not going to be angry with you because i realize this family is not there for good reason he deserves the time off. He yes, he does. Hard. Yes, he does. Anyway, I'm listening and I'm thinking about Trayvon because the other day I was at a store and um, I heard this white father tell his little boy to hurry up and finish his drink, whatever he had. He said, because we have to go and buy your hoodies. 
And I looked over and I said, this kid looked like he was about six, seven years old. And I said, you know, it's so nice that someone can just actually take someone's child and buy them a hoodie and there's no commotion. And yet when this boy was murdered, he had a hoodie on and it was raining. And I'm thinking, what person would not put a hoodie on if it were raining. If you had an umbrella, you'd put it up if it were raining. And, you know, I've heard some really ugly things, and I'm not going to say them online because I don't know if I would be allowed to. So I'm not, I don't want to make it, you know, difficult for your for your show. But really nasty things about what a hoodie means and why a person would wear a hoodie. And, um, you know, even like sexual, you know, innuendo as to mm-hmm. what a hoodie means. Nothing that, you know, would just say, you know, like we need, you need something like that to protect yourself. Or just for the simple fact that you have a hood on. I right. You're absolutely right, Ms. Deborah. We thank you so much for, for calling in. I mean, the hoodie has grown to symbolize um, something much larger than what it is. It symbolizes, um, you know, the, the death of a 17 year old boy who went to the store to buy Skittles and iced tea, who was armed with nothing else and who was killed because he was walking in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time. And uh, this, you know, white man said, well, this white identifying man said, I'm going to take you out. I mean, I think that. Remember when Geraldo Rivera came out after the shooting and said, you know, it's because of the hoodie. Like he blamed the hoodie and not the man with the gun who shot and killed him Mm -hmm. um, for Trayvon Martin's death, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. And I think that Miss Deborah brings up a really good point that this isn't, you know, that there are plenty of people, plenty of white people who can wear a hoodie without fear of being shot. That's true. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, There was actually a really good article about that in the New York Times. It was called The Politics of the Hoodie, so I recommend you check that out. It's exactly about this issue of who can and who cannot wear a hoodie. Um, But before we get going, there's one more story we wanted to hit, and that is this story about what's going on with Russia. Um, And so, obviously, uh, you know, we weren't on the air last week, but uh, one of the things that happened while we were off the air was Michael Flynn uh, retired, resigned. um, (laughs) Retired after 60 days or whatever. That's a nice way of putting yeah. it. He, re- he had to resign because of the fact that it came to light that um, he, uh, by the free press, by the way, yep. um, that he had lied to the vice president about conversations that he had had with his counterpart in Russia about whether or not we were going to lift the sanctions. And in the same uh, week and basically in the same day, it also came out that the news had uncovered the, uh, again, free press had uncovered that there was ties uh, between the Trump administration and the Kremlin, uh, meaning Russia, and that the Trump administration and the Kremlin were chatting and hanging out with each other while the DNC was getting hacked. Um, And so obviously this issue about what uh, ties the Trump administration has to Russia and what a level of influence Russia exerted over um, our election has become a big issue. I think that there's going to be more news that ends up coming out of it. Uh, People have called it the close thing to Watergate since Watergate. Yeah. Dan Rather actually called it worse than Watergate if it turns out to be true. Um, and I definitely want to get your thoughts, but I will say, I will be really, really happy if the PP party tape comes out. Right, I mean, because, yeah, won't uh, we all? As much as I, I mean, don't think I want to see it, right. I want it to be the, in the public the eye. The most amazing thing that Trump said in response to these leaks were that, um, what did he say? He said, the, the leaks are real, 
you know, he re- he report he answered a reporter's question by saying the leaks are real. You reported on them. The leaks are definitely real, but the news is fake. Yep. Because the news so often is fake. That doesn't make any what sense. What does that mean? Like, what are you talking about? You are out of your mind. So basically, saying like you reporters, you reported on this news, which was real, but the news was fake because by the transit of property, the news is always fake. Like, are you? I, and do, do people, well, I mean, like, I heard that and I laughed out loud because I was like, that is so absurd. That's one of the most absurd things I've ever heard. But do other people realize how ridiculous this is? Or are they buying it? I'm, I'm going to Kelly Ann Conway you oh, right now. No. And so, so just lie to my face. <laughs> okay, continue. And Lie and, to and, me, please. Yeah. And let you guys understand that the angles in which the news <laughs> talks about it and the fact that they make everything so negative is not fully true and could be justified or argued as negative. Are you auditioning for um, a position with the Trump campaign? No, or administration? Because it, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, but you know what? The, best per- the person who said this the best was, believe it or not, Shepard Smith on yeah. Fox News. Um, when, you know, when Trump loses Fox, he's he's going to have a big problem because that's, it's already you know, happening. And it's already happening um, that Fox is starting to push back against him. But exactly what you just said, like Shepard Smith said, the, the if the, like you can't on one hand say that the leaks are real because the and the news are fake because that's like saying like it's like if p then q <laughs> if not p then not q it's a very simple logic problem so you can't have a situation where you say that the leaks are real but the news is fake because that's basically a logical inconsistency right. and it's not possible in our world so either the leaks are real and the news is real or the leaks are fake and the news are fake but it cannot be a combination of both <laughs> those two things on that note before we go on that note i need to let everyone know that let your voice be heard is currently having a fundraiser on gofundme.com slash let your voice be heard if you love us if you love the way that we report independently the news that we cover the topics the fact that we let marginalized voices uh be heard on our show and that's what we represent that is who we are then we need your support if you can go to gofundme.com slash let your voice be heard radio right now and offer either five dollars ten dollars something to keep us going to keep us here on WATR so we can continue to do the work that Fox News won't do okay <laughs> that in that CNN doesn't even do all the time as well so we are independent media but we definitely need your support that's why we have a campaign to raise money now so Definitely go there, gofundme.com slash let your voice be heard. On that note, we do have to take another break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we'll be talking about immigration, immigrant rights, and the latest ice raids right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. It go down. It go down. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs, Jackie Cohen. And right before we went on break, we had the news roundup where we talked about a number of different stories. One of the stories we talked about was Trayvon Martin. And we actually had a caller just call in, Miss Dapper. She said she made a really good point yeah. because I said that Trayvon Martin was at the wrong place at the wrong time, which is not true yeah. because, as she said, he's American he had a right to be anywhere he wanted to be and the thing is he was the victim in the case and that 
that's pretty much it. And yeah. it stops there. It's unjustifiable. It's, you know, you can't argue it. Um, the justice system did not uphold justice in this case. Yeah. And that's why we continue to fight. And I understand we did get another comment, um, Alyssa, on politically preposterous. Oh, yeah. But unfortunately, I can't access it at the moment. Okay. Uh, but I, I'll give you the gist of it was that uh, one of our commenters said that part of the reason why uh, Trump does not condemn some of these hate groups or the KKK or Putin is also has to do with money um, because of money in politics and because of, you know, the fact that some of these groups may making maybe making political donations to him um, and he does not want to lose out on that cash. And I think that was a fair point point that also deserve to be mentioned definitely guys and again if you want to let your voice be heard you can call us up at 212-650-6903 so we're going to move on into a new conversation right now uh we need to talk about what happened last week so the trump administration announced a big increase in deportations of those who are undocumented along with an expansive revision of immigration enforcement policies so he they the, the federal government also released a number of memos calling for the deportation of immigrants le- living here uh, illegally um, who are charged or convicted with the crime including petty crimes like shoplifting traffic violations jaywalking or illegally crossing the border which you, you know it's just those which is a civil infraction, not necessarily a crime. I can get into that a little more. Okay. No, thank you for that. On. So as a result, this has caused massive pandemonium in immigrant communities um, and, 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 and workspaces. I mean, even today, I mean, even yesterday I was speaking to my uncle and he said the, the contractor that we usually have come out and work on, a, on the house is afraid to leave his home. He's worked with our family in uh, in the past, but he's just not like returning phone calls and he's he's afraid to leave. And a lot of people are living with this fear. There are rumors. There are social media hoaxes. um, There's a lot of gossip. People don't know what's fact, what's fiction, what's fake news, what's real news. And it's just causing fear. And I want to point out that on the other hand. Under the Obama administration, immigrants who crossed the border without permission or who happened to overstay their visas, they were generally not targeted for deportation. Um, And we also know that the Obama administration, although they did not pass because they could not pass um, immigration reform, they did. uh, He did use his executive powers to do things like DACA, which uh, protects uh, young people who were brought to the country by their parents when they were very, very young. So, you know, this is a huge turnaround. We know that Donald Trump actually won this election by persecuting, uh, saying things against immigrants, and then he passed the Muslim ban. So we're going to talk about that now, I just want to get you guys reaction to like the latest ICE raids, uh, the, the executive order and basically the anti-immigrant uh, sentiment, which started off as rhetoric on the campaign trail and is now coming into fruition as policy. I mean, I think, you know, I was going to say this in the last segment, but this is my favorite Maya Angelou quote, which I feel like I say about Trump all the time. Um, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Right. Trump has never I mean, this is what he ran on. He ran on this nationalist, xenophobic 
platform. So he is, you know, this is what he said he was going to do. We're in disbelief that he's taking action on it. Um, But he's doing what he said he was going to do. Now, that being said, that doesn't justify what's happening. And there's, you know, we need to be resisting this policy change. Um, But I I have this like theory and I don't know how substantiated it is or not. But I I feel like what Trump is doing is trying to stir up, you know, he's trying to, to warrant the sense of fear so that um, undocumented immigrants self-deport, right? I don't think that he is actually, even though he says he's going to do it and that he is like taking strong action right now and it's very scary right now and I know that there's a lot of undocumented immigrants um, who are living and going into hiding. I mean, this is what reminds me, I, I you know, I said in the first segment, like this direct parallel um, between Nazi Germany and the United States where there are immigrants going into hiding, fearful that they're going to be rounded up and sent away. Um you know, I think that he's taking this action right now. But at the end of the day, I mean, it, to to enforce this policy will cost the country billions and billions of dollars. And I, I have trouble believing as somebody who is so concerned with the finances of this country or not with this country, but of himself, that he's going to fully implement this. I, my theory is that he's trying to drum up a tremendous amount of fear, which is what he's doing. And it's very scary for many people right now to create this culture that it could happen to create this fearful culture. But is he actually going to enforce this and spend up to, you know, $600 billion in deporting every single person who is here, who is undocumented? I don't know. Um, Guys, if you're just tuning in and you want to comment about the state of immigration in our country during the Trump era, call us up. The number is 212-650-6903. You can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio as well. So, so Alyssa, I wanted to definitely get you to chime into, you know, um, now that Trump is within the first hundred days of office and we see his attitude on immigration, um, is he's enforcing it now. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, so let's just talk for a second from the legal aspect about these uh, executive orders. So um, there was three of them mainly issued. And essentially what they do is one is uh, for targeting uh, transnational crime, um, which is essentially a target on gangs and about um, gang. Now, what that also does, though, is necessarily puts people that are not in a gang, but that have a family member or friend or somebody that they are affiliated with, but, um, you know, are not part of their gang also at risk for possible deportation. Number two is they have expanded the list of crimes or infractions that you can be deported for. Uh, So right now, although Obama was considered to be the deporter in chief and deported more uh, people than George Bush or Bill Clinton, um, at the same time, they prioritized deporting those people, not who had just crossed the border illegally, but that had been convicted of a violent crime. Um, Now, with this expanded list, we're looking at something like fair beating can be considered the type of crime Uh, that you can be deported for. And FYI, fair beating is the uh, thing that people are arrested for the most and mainly people of color um, in the city of New York, which is something that we can talk about uh, because it's a little more local later on in the segment. Uh, So that was number two. Number three um, also said that they potentially were going to start going after the parents of um, 
children. So if you're a parent and you're here legally, but your child is not, and you convince your child to come across the border mm-hmm. to try and be with you, and your child gets caught, that they could potentially criminally prosecute the parent for the actions of the children. Um, the fourth thing that sort of got laid out is that they are no longer necessarily going to honor uh, President Obama's DACA and DAPA. DACA being deferred action for childhood arrivals and DAPA being deferred action for the parents of Americans. Um, although, as I said, the Obama administration did deport a lot of deport a lot of people. It was very prioritized. They did not. They tried not to de- uh, deport uh, people who were brought here as children by no fault of their own that did not have status, and they tried very, very hard not to deport the parents of those who are here illegally of American citizens. So obviously now we're going to see this increased enforcement. Um, I want to get you back into the conversation, but I do have some numbers just to add on to what Jackie said. Um, so, you know, obviously I'll have you, uh, you want me to tell you now? So basically there was a bunch of articles that have come out about this um, and about the amount of money that is essentially going to be spent. Right now, uh, we are spending more than $19 billion a year and more than $306 billion in, uh, since 1986. Um, that sum of money to do immigrations and customs enforcement in- exceeds the sum of all spending for the FBI, the DEA, the Secret Service, the Marshal Service, ATF, which is Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms. Um, so basically, ICE and Border Patrol, just this one agency, um, refers more cases for pred- federal prosecution than the entire Department of Justice does, um, more than 400,000. That is greater than the number of inmates that are currently being held by the Federal Bureau of Prisons. All of that, of course, comes at a price, and it costs us a lot, a lot of money to do that. In fact, uh, um, all of the people that Mr. Kelly, who is the person in charge of the Department of Homeland Security right now, will have to be detained and deported will come at an expense. Congress requires the Homeland Security Department to maintain about 34,000 immigration detention beds, which costs us an annual estimate of $2 billion or $5.5 million a day uh, just to house people uh, prior to being deported. Obviously, there are more numbers about that um, and that you can go and look at this New York Times article that lays out a lot more of those numbers. Those numbers do not even take into account the amount of money we would lose that undocumented immigrants actually pay in taxes um, because a lot of them either use another social security number so they actually pay income taxes or B, they don't but they purchase consumer goods and so they pay sales taxes um, right. and also the amount of labor we would lose to do these low level un- uh, jobs that Americans just don't want to do. So there's just so many different angles of this um, in how we lose out by deporting all of these immigrants. No, you you are absolutely right. Um, immigrants are embedded into our society and into our communities. I mean, it's at the point where it would do more damage for them to all get up and leave or for us to somehow try to deport them, um, as Alyssa just mentioned. But another thing I wanted to mention is the fact that, you know, we live here in New York City, and this is something that we call a sanctuary city. But, you know, I'm hearing a lot of pushback, like, is New York City really um, a, a sanctuary city that is moving to protect our immigrants? I mean, I don't think that you can consider yourself a sanctuary city when you enforce broken windows. You just can't, right? You and, can't. And can you oh, explain? Yeah, well, Alyssa mentioned before, so one of the biggest um, cri- crimes that we prosecute shouldn't even be a crime it right is fair evasion right and fair evasion Alyssa and i had a a lengthy conversation about this during the week is a crime where you receive a ticket or summons for 
in New York City, $100 if you are caught evading the fare. Um, it's and you're white. And, <laughs> and you're white. If you don't have an ID on you, you automatically um, get taken in to jail, right? You... Or I just want to interject. Or if the cop's just not in the mood to issue you the ticket. Right. I mean, like, there's so many different reasons why a police officer could decide that he's not going to issue you a transit authority bureau summons. Now, there's a whole other issue with these civil summonses, which I'm not going to get into. It's not the topic of today's conversation. It just seems to me. But it's, like, really up to the officer. And at any given time, you could either get a ticket or you could be brought into custody. And from there, you could be picked up by immigration. Exactly. So it just seems to me that if you're going to be prosecuting for these low-level offenses, Right. Or you're going to be if something like jumping a turnstile and you don't have an ID is an automatic arrest. I don't think that you can consider yourself a sanctuary city. Right. Quote unquote sanctuary for undocumented immigrants when then you are in return prosecuting these low level crimes that puts many people, especially undocumented or, you know, many people who are undocumented at risk for deportation. Right. They just cannot exist together so so what's the idea of a sanctuary city versus a freedom city i know you guys mentioned that term earlier this week is, what, what's, is there a big difference? Yeah, there is a big difference. So a sanctuary city is essentially a city where the local government says we are not going to prioritize, you know, we are not going to work with the federal government. So a big thing was that before New York City became a sanctuary city, you would see a lot of somebody would get um, arrested and bail would be set on them and they would be brought to Rikers Island and then Rikers Island would essentially let immigration just come ice, come walk around and, you know, check into the immigration status of lots and lots of different people um, and figure out who is there. Um, And also the police department in particular would work with immigration and customs enforcement in order to enforce federal immigration law, which is not the mission or the jurisdiction of the NYPD. At some point, this changed. And the city said, we are no longer going to work with the federal government. We are not going to help them. Obviously, if they send us a warrant for somebody who's a violent criminal, um, like I'll use El Chapo as an example, although El Chapo is wanted here and is currently right here in federal prison in Manhattan, separate story um, that, you know, those people we will detain, but we're not going to actively help immigration and customs enforcement to enforce immigration laws since, you know, essentially that is not our job um, that we are going to be doing as the NYPD. Uh, So that is essentially what a sanctuary city is. The difference between a sanctuary city and a freedom city is sort of what you pointed out. The reason why we can't be a sanctuary city is because we still enforce broken windows policing. And so because the majority of the reasons why people of color um, and undocumented people undocumented people have interactions with immigration is because they first have interactions with the criminal justice system and in some cases for low-level criminal offenses. So on one hand, you have Mayor de Blasio saying, we're a sanctuary city, we're going to protect immigrants. But on the other hand, he's perpetuating this broken windows policing, which catches a lot of immigrants up in this net that eventually puts them in touch with ICE. And in the past, under Obama, some of these low-level crimes may not have been deportable, but now um, under Trump, these crimes are deportable. A freedom city would be one where we got rid of broken windows and we made sure that we were make you know that low level things were not necessarily arrestable that at you know that maybe we issued tickets but in some cases we gave out warnings and that we made sure to keep these people out of the criminal justice system or even out of the system completely obviously there are some other aspects to a freedom city um, about the uh, you know 
collection of information. Obviously, that's an issue with the New York City ID program that we can get into talking about, but there are many other aspects of it. And if New York City really wanted to protect immigrants, we need to become more of a freedom city than just a sanctuary because it's not enough. Definitely. Uh, On that note, we do have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we'll continue talking about what we need to do to protect immigrants here in our own community as well as across the nation. Don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Boom. Let, <laughs> this is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs and Jackie Cohen. We are talking about immigration in the era of Trump. That means it's getting worse. But, of course, there are always things that we can do and we should be doing. And at the end of this segment, we will give you that call to action so that we can know what next steps to take. But, you know, when we, uh, we left off, we, we talked about Trump's executive orders we talked about uh, what's a sanctuary city versus a freedom city uh, and how why we need to be pushing for freedom cities especially right here in new york city but you know another thing that i want to address is why is you know immigration seen as such like this big bad scary thing in the first place right and i think that if we examine the historical context of immigration and we realize that early in the 20th century we passed an immigration uh bill that also discriminated against immigrants coming into the country they weren't muslims at this time they weren't coming from a uh, uh, syria they were coming from other parts of Europe. But this is something that I think um, Americans or, or have always seen as a problem. They, they look at immigration as, as something that takes away from us, even though the, the stats and the data show the exact opposite. So, I mean, Jackie, do you have any insight on why our friends on the right don't, like, you know, see just the facts? Racist. Sorry. (laughs) Alyssa just said racist. Right, racist. Yeah, I mean, I think that it it has nothing to do with... There's always... I think you mentioned it. Who mentioned it in the first segment? That there's, like, the subtle... It's not always so overt, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, Alyssa mentioned in the first segment that, you know racism or anti-semitism or islamophobia it's not always as overt as saying i hate immigrants i hate you know there's always a way to frame it that that seems like oh well it's about our economy or it's about like the distribution of resources or it's about our safety and you know this and the other thing but at the end of the day it's about being racist and about being xenophobic and not you know not wanting to live in a country that's diverse Right. And, and you know, I, I agree with that because these people can use economics as a way to say, oh, immigrants are taking our jobs. Immigrants commit crimes. Immigrants drive wages down. The fact of the matter is all the facts prove that those things aren't true. And when you try and tell them the facts, then either A, they tell you they don't believe them, that they're alternative facts, that it's fake news. Because, of course, this is part of the problem with the president constantly calling things fake news and demeaning the media. When you have actual information to back up your points to say, no, those things aren't true people just won't listen to you because they don't buy those things because they've been so conditioned now to believe that anything that comes from the New York Times or the Washington Post or any mainstream organization is fake news when that's not actually true. Um, And so that's really another thing that we need to think about in terms of combating this. But just to give you some of these numbers and why I say, you know, even though these people want to believe that they're not racist, if they would for take two or not xenophobic, if they would take two seconds and actually listen to the actual data, they would realize that they're incorrect. So on 
on the issue of, da- uh, you know, David Brooks, who I don't particularly like, and I should put that out there, although I think sometimes you should always read people that you don't always agree with because they do in some cases make good points. David Brooks wrote an article about this this week, and he attacked some of these things. And I'm not going to read his article, but I do want to give you the gist of some of the, the points. Number one, um, immigrants, immigrants do not take native jobs on any sort of like one-to-one basis. In fact, immigrants help to drive economic activity. Um, they help to create new jobs in some area, and they push native workers into more complicated jobs that actually pay more. In fact, there was a comprehensive study of non-European Union immigrants um, into Denmark that was done between 1991 and 2008, and it found that immigrants did not push down wages, but they freed native citizens up to do more pleasant work in other areas that actually paid more money. Um, And there was another study, it was an exhaustive study that was done by the National Academy of Sciences that found that immigration did not drive down most wages, but it had a very small and temporary effect on native-born workers without high school degrees, meaning it did not affect everybody. Um, In fact, uh, the, the last time we cut immigration in the 1920s, we were in the middle of a baby boom, and actually fertility rates plummeted, and we had a uh, decline in the working age population. So it doesn't make sense to me why, you know, people actually believe these things when the the numbers and the facts show that when we have more immigrants doing some of the jobs that Americans don't want to do, that frees up Americans, native-born Americans, to go do j- more jobs that they want to do that actually pay higher wages, and it affects the economics all the way down the river, as David Brooks put it, in, like, you know, they say, what's the quote? Uh, something lifts all, a rising tide lifts all, all boats, boats, right? Yeah. And so that's exactly what happens when we see immigration, is that actually these people don't drive things down. That rising tide lifts all boats. In addition, with the res- with respect to crime, what they've actually find is that immigrants commit crimes at a lower rate than, than native-born Americans. So actually, somebody who immigrates to the United States, because they want to seek the American dream and they don't want to do something to screw that up, they are much less likely to commit a crime than a native-born American who is not at risk for potentially being deported. Because remember, even if you're here legally, um, if you commit a crime, you can be deported, you can lose your visa, you can have your lawful permanent residency papers revoked. Um, Obviously, once you become a citizen, that can't happen. But American citizens, they can't be deported, so they don't have to worry about those things. In addition, and the last thing I want to mention is about these kids, right? A lot of the people who are coming here, at least from Central America, that are youth, they are coming here um, because they are seeking asylum. And what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, the number of people, in order to seek asylum, you physically have to be on U.S. soil. Um, So you cannot, if you want to become a refugee, you can go to a U.S. embassy and seek refugee status. And once you are approved, like we saw with some of these people coming from Muslim countries and vetted, then you can come to the United States. But if you want to seek asylum, you physically have to be here on the physical property of the United States, which means for a lot of these kids coming from Central America, they have no choice but to go through awful conditions, um, trek through the wilderness with little food. Um, Some of these young girls get raped by the handlers. The young men are sometimes um, forced into bad situations, but eventually they get here. And in order for them to make a claim for asylum, they actually have to be on the border. So they actually have to cross the border illegally first before they can make this asylum claim. And the proof that most of these children actually have legitimate claims is that 73% of the children who cross the border coming from Central America are actually granted asylum. Um, So that's a really high number, 73%. The last thing I want to mention, 
before I, I throw it back to you, because I know we're getting towards the end of this segment, is, um, you know, there was a time, and this sort of ties into our first segment, during the 1930s, where Anne Frank's parents were desperately seeking to get... Um, visas to come to America. And because of anti-Jewish sentiment, um, they were denied these opportunities. And eventually, as we all know, Anne and her sister were both killed at concentration camps. And at least with respect to some of the Syrian refugees, but some of these other young children coming here from Central America that have legitimate asylum claims by us having this anti-immigrant sentiment that is based on false narratives and xenophobia, we are essentially leading some of these children to their death. So if you consider yourself to be pro-life and you are anti-abortion um, and then then you cannot plausibly say that you are anti-immigrant at the same time because some of these right. children, they are going to die if they don't get here. And you cannot be pro-life if you support the kind of immigration policy that prevents them from coming here and eventually may lead to their death. No, that's absolutely true. And I think that, you know, we, we should definitely spend more time uh, uh, talking about uh, solutions, talking about how we can protect uh, immigrants who happen to be some of the most marginalized uh, people in our in our society right now. And I wanted to just throw that at Jackie to see like what we can and should be doing now, especially as an activist. I mean, like, you know, um, you know, firsthandedly what, you know, should be done and resources. Like, can you? Yeah, I mean, I think that as far as resources, arming people with accurate knowledge. I know that a few weeks ago there was um, a lot of like misinformation on Facebook going around saying, oh, ice raids are happening at the Jackson Heights subway station or at this place and this place when they weren't actually happening. And I think a lot of people were spreading this misinformation from a place of from a not a bad place, right? From a place of, oh, I have friends that are undocumented or I care about this issue, so I want people to know this thing. So I see it on Facebook. I'm going to click share. And what they did ultimately was not spread any useful information, but drum up a, a real sense of fear, right? And that's really scary. And I can't imagine being someone who's undocumented, who feels like they have to go into hiding, Um to to see something like that and it's not even true so i think that we have to as as people who want to support our undocumented friends and neighbors to um you know make this a vested interest to un you know to to read up on these issues to know what information that we're spreading is real especially in this time of like real versus fake news to make it a priority to spread real news accurate information um and then ultimately to stand by our neighbors and our friends and to speak out against um against these mass deportations that are are terrifying communities that are you know very much just because they may not be illegal does not mean they are unjust um and speak up and call our legislators and call um you know Put the call out to our president to say, we do not support this. As the American people, we are not supporting these actions. And that's what we did. I mean, it took a, a number of hours before we came out in droves to protest his Muslim ban. Right. Um, again, which is extremely anti-immigrant. You know, we were at JFK. We were at LAX. All across the nation, we pushed back. And you know what? The president, they rolled back. So, you know, when we come out and we collectively talk about these things and then we have federal judges on our side that that take this uh that question the legality of it we can make way so you know Alyssa, if you can very quickly talk about some of these solutions yeah no i was just also going to add to that which is a lawyers a lot of lawyers have volunteered their time to deal with some of these issues but one thing that they really need is fluent and native spanish speakers to help them translate because not a lot of immigrant not all of the lawyers who are volunteering who are not naturally immigration lawyers um can actually speak spanish or some of the other languages that need to be spoken so 
Colorado. If you are a native Spanish speaker, um, you know, you should reach out to one of the programs I know, one of the projects I know that is looking for people is the Safe Passages Project. If you Google the Safe Passages Project, uh, New York City, you will definitely find the information from that. I know they are looking for, um, so there's definitely first for translators. So even if you're not a lawyer, if you want to help out the legal community uh, in fighting some of these things in court, uh, there are definitely ways for you to get involved. And I know there are lawyers that would love to have you help. And I know a lot of people are just looking for ways to volunteer. And, and this is one of those ways that you absolutely can volunteer. Definitely. And and again, just to, to, to reiterate, if you happen to live here in New York City, um, if you haven't already joined the move to get rid of broken windows, let this be the reason and the time to do so because not only does it disproportionately hurt black and brown people, but as mentioned, it also hurts our undocumented friends, friends, co-workers, and family members. Um, and that's something that we can directly push for and fight for here in New York City when it comes to our local officials. On a larger note, I think that let this be just another reason why we have to get up and vote in 2018. Next year, we will have a Uh, We will have midterm elections and it will be our chance to finally take back the House, take back the Senate. And this way we have elected officials in two branches of government pushing back against Donald Trump and his horrible, bizarre, discriminatory policies and practices. And on another note, we should also be looking forward to uh, 2020 and making sure that if we aren't already uh, supporting the people or the person that we want to run, we're getting involved as much as possible because I think that there's so much power in our vote. We've seen it happen. And I know we all came out in, in, in millions, millions more voted for Hillary Clinton than we did Donald Trump. But the fact of the matter is, if we don't come out again in 2018 and in 2020, we're only going to have more of this. And it's only going to hurt and disproportionately affect people like us. So on that note, we do have to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere. When we come back, Alyssa is going to give us a quickie on how and why Donald Trump is hurting trans students right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, You're so calm. You're Am so I? calm right now, Selena. I yeah. know. You know, I just like just to zen. Be calm. <laughs> I just, yeah, zen. I'm just feeling it right now. Um, of course, we have with us Jackie Cohen. We have Alyssa Fuchs, our legal resident, um, our legal scholar um, here on the show. And I think we are ready for the quickie. We are. Perfect. I'm, yeah, I, I can't be a resident. I'm not a doctor. Sorry. I'm <laughs> a lawyer. Um, <laughs> anyways, on that note, so um, remember what it was like to have to go through puberty and how awful it was, right. um, you know, when when that when you were coming of age and you your body was changing um, and you were going through all these things and you didn't exactly know what was going on in your life. Um, it's a really stressful situation for somebody who is a trans teenager. Um, in, well, sorry, for any teenager. And but if you're a trans teenager and you are a trans child and you um, are not born in the correct body and you do not identify with the body uh, you were born in and you now have to go through puberty, um, that is going to be even more of a stressful situation for you as somebody who is trans than it is for somebody who is not. Um, and as we already know, for somebody who is not trans, it is already a very stressful situation. Uh, so one of the ways in which the uh, government helped to deal with this was that last year when Obama was still the president, he issued a policy memo that stated that a school may not require transgender students to use facilities inconsistent with their gender identity or to use 
use individual user facilities when other students are not required to do so. More important, the Obama administration directive stated that under federal law, a school's obligation to ensure non-discrimination on the basis of sex required the school to provide trans students equal access to educational programs and activities even in circumstances when other students, other parents, or other communities raised objections or concerns. What this meant is that as soon as a child's parent or legal guardian asserted that their gender identity was different from their previous representation or from their records, meaning their birth certificate, the child would be treated accordingly without any requirement for a medical diagnosis or birth certificate to be produced, and that schools may, but were not required to, provide restrooms and locker room facilities to other students who objected to uh, to this because those students wanted uh, additional privacy. The Obama administration took these actions for two reasons. Number one, in civil rights cases, and this is in all civil rights cases, the desire to accommodate others' discomfort does not ever justify singling out or disadvantaging a particular group. We can see this when we talk about lunch counters or water fountains. People said that they were uncomfortable with black people using their water fountains and uncomfortable with black people sitting at their lunch counters. And guess what? The government said, too bad, so sad. We don't care about whether or not you're uncomfortable. We care about equal rights. And so that is generally the case in civil rights cases. And obviously, we saw that through Jim Crow and through the rise of the civil rights movement. The other part of that is that Title IX, which is federal law, um, prohibits sex discrimination in education. And because we are talking about sex and sex and gender, although they are different, are uh, related to one another, you cannot possibly uh, just not just you cannot possibly not discriminate, uh, I'm sorry, not violate Title IX when you discriminate against trans students, because by its very definition, it deals with sex and gender issues. So under the Obama administration's guidance, schools were schools that force transgender kids to use bathrooms that match their birth sex or that force them to use um, all gender restrooms uh, could actually lose their federal funding because they would be in violation of Title IX. Republicans were outraged. 23 states sued the federal government. Part of the guidelines were actually stayed by a federal judge. So what you should first realize about the Trump administration rescinding these guidelines is that at least part of them were already being held in abeyance and were not in effect due to a court ruling that, by the way, the Trump administration has decided not to defend, uh, which is why this is even more of a bigger issue, because obviously if Obama was still president or if Hillary was president, they would have defended their actions in court, whereas the Trump administration is saying, eh, you know, we're going to we're going to just let it be. We're not going to bring an appeal because the government held up um, these previous actions of the previous president. So but the other thing that's going on is on Friday, the Department of Justice and the Department of Education um, at the direction of President Trump actually rescinded these Obama administration guidelines, and they falsely suggested that the department needed to take more time to look into the experience of states and to look into the experiences of local school districts. However, what we know about the experience of, uh, of local school districts by speaking to school administrators is that inclusive policies actually... Um, uh, are good for schools and that the weight of the evidence weighs in favor of inclusive policies, not against them. In fact, school districts across the country have adopted inclusive policies have in, uh, that have, I'm sorry, adopted these inclusive policies, have enjoyed safer and more welcoming learning environments for all their students, whether they're transgender or not, and it has led to less bullying in these schools on the whole. Um, by insisting that the study, m- m- sorry, that by insisting that more study is warranted to decide whether transgender students should be treated 
treated fairly. The government sends a disturbing message to transgender students that they are less than other students, that they are unworthy of protection, um, or that they are nothing. Um, in addition, that the memo likely will confuse states and school districts, and that will put trans children at greater risk of being harmed. What we already know is that the transgender students in this country face greater realities depending on their school. Some are restricted to the bathroom of the gender that they are born um, that they were born to. Others are forced to travel long distances to use a gender-neutral restroom or to hold in when they have to go to the bathroom, which puts them at health risk for infections um, and other health issues. In addition, when trans students are told that they cannot use public facilities, not only does that block them from the toilet, it also blocks them from entering public life. Um, and what is especially troubling about these actions is that transgender students are already subject to more violence and harassment than their peers at school. They are more likely to drop out of school and without an education, it is more difficult for them to find a job, to support oneself, and to have a life. Um, nearly half of trans, trans and gender nonconforming students have considered suicide, and 42% have inter, uh, sorry, uh, injured themselves. Uh, this kind of discrimination in schools has far-reaching consequences, um, and it adds into the lifelong experience for transgender people, both psychologically and financially. Um, the silver lining to all this is that it's possible that Trump and his executive agencies will not um, will not be able to change what Title IX says. I say possible because obviously Congress could always pass a new law. Um, that job, as I said, belongs to Congress and the courts. But if Congress and the court uh, Congress change Title IX to say that it excluded transgender people, that would obviously be worse. In addition, as we all know, the Supreme Court is about to hear the case of Gavin Grimm, who is a 17-year-old student from Gloucester County, Virginia. His school district uh, originally said he could use the uh, he had permission to use the bathroom, but eventually the school district barred him from using the boys' restroom because he's trans, um, and that is going up to the Supreme Court. A lower court has actually ruled in Gavin's favor, as have most courts that have considered the question, and the Supreme Court is going to have to make this determination. Um, as I talked about, what could potentially happen in that is Gavin's case could neutralize the Trump administration and say that Title IX um, protects trans students um, and that other civil rights uh, laws protect trans students. It could be a huge setback for trans rights in that the Supreme Court could rule against Gavin, or because the lower court has actually ruled in Gavin's favor, a split court, meaning uh, a four-to-four decision, would actually uphold the lower court ruling, which means Gavin would be able to use the bathroom in that circuit, but it means that other students in other circuits would not be protected and would essentially create this patchwork of where you can use the bathroom and where you can't, just like we have now, similar to uh, what we could see happen in the abortion context if Roe versus Wade was overturned, which we also talked about on a previous show and a previous quickie that you can check out. Um, So ultimately, this is a really important issue. It's really disappointing, um, especially for trans students, but for all of us that are against bullying and want to see the protection of children. And hopefully the Supreme Court will vindicate this issue. But at the end of the day, it's going to be it's going to be a rocky road. So we got to keep watch this space, as Rachel Maddow would say. Definitely. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for giving us a quickie briefing update on everything that's going on around that. And again, guys, if you enjoyed what we do here on Let Your Voice Be Heard and you would like to support us, please support our GoFundMe 
campaign at gofundme.com slash let your voice be heard radio we would appreciate any support that you guys can offer um, on that note you can also subscribe to us via iTunes um, you can find us on Google Play you can also find us on our website and that's the acronym for let your voice be heard lyvbh.com until next week enjoy the rest of your Sunday and we'll be back next week God willing take care from the briefings right